Up next on episode 69 of Stack Overflow, Joel and Jeff sit down with Peter Seibel to discuss his new book, Coders at Work, the effects of listening to music while coding, and the future of programming books from IT Conversations. Hi, this is Phil Windley. Today I'm excited to bring you another great program from Stack Overflow with Joel Spolsky and Jeff Atwood here on IT Conversations. The Conversations Network is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we need your help. For a tax-deductible donation of as little as $5 per month, you can support this channel and the rest of the Conversations Network. So please visit conversationsnetwork.org to become a member and help us continue to bring our programs to the world for free. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. And now, here's Stack Overflow. Okay, our special guest this week on Stack Overflow podcast, episode number 69, is uh, uh, Peter Seibel, who has uh, just completed a book called Coders at Work. Uh, he's also the author, uh, and, that's a, and that's a book of interviews uh, with a bunch of um, uh, superstar programmers of various sorts. Mm-hmm. All and Joel, you were not interviewed for this book. No, I'm not a superstar programmer. All very famous programmers. I am a what's the word? Babble mouth, bubblehead. <laughs> you're you're a, you're a duct tape programmer. <laughs> I'm not a I'm not even a duct tape programmer. <laughs> and uh, and uh, Peter also wrote uh, the the Practical Common Lisp, the best selling Lisp book. Oh wow. So that's, what, 14, 15 copies or something, just completely burning up the Lisp. Exactly. Uh, no offense, it's just Lisp <laughs> is sort of a little bit of a niche, niche product there. Um, and uh, what else? Uh, so... just to, I actually, well, real briefly, Peter, I did actually get an email, which in classic me form I did not actually respond to but I read and appreciated you mailed me on August 8th about the book which I, I was aware of the book uh, I hadn't had a chance to read it um, but it is really cool and I just want to list some of the people that are in it because it is really nice list of programmers I mean you got Jamie Zawinski the famous duct tape programmer Brad Fitzpatrick Douglas Crockford Brendan Ike, Joshua Bach Joe Armstrong Peter Norvig Guy Steele, Ben Ingalls, Ken Thompson, Bernie Cosell, and of course Donald Knuth. Wow, Knuth. 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 The K um, is so, not silent. <laughs> Knuth. <laughs> uh, yeah, so exciting. I mean, that's, that's a great, certainly, list of participants. I, I think I remember reading you were, you were actually trying to narrow down who was going to be in the book. Wasn't that a selection process in itself? Yeah, so about, uh, I guess, what it was two years ago that I started, and the first thing I did was started making a list just make a list myself and then I put up some pages on the web where people could suggest names and then give a couple different tools where people could sort them. I think the first one they they could pick out the 16 names they thought I should interview and then eventually I gave a thing where they could just sort the whole list and sort of push the people towards the top that they wanted and then I could combine all those different people's sorts into a sort of voting scheme and so I came up with I think eventually 284 names whoa Um, Really? Wow. Yeah. I mean, that was, you know, that was like everyone suggested something they thought was cool. Um, and, uh, and then from that, I obviously had to narrow it down. And it basically, you know, well, let's see, there were, you know, a lot of the people who were in the book were in the top sort of vote getters. Mm-hmm. Um, there were a couple of people who were high up on the list who didn't get in. Um, or who didn't end up in the book, but just because I couldn't get them to agree or even reply to me. I think actually the only people who really didn't reply to me were um, one the sort of the most popular and the most uh, frequently mentioned now that the book is out. Is like why isn't he in this book? Is John Carmack, who wrote oh. uh, the, you know the engines behind Doom and Quake, right? And I just could never get any reply from him whether he wanted to be in the book or not. Um, but most of the people were really good about. Replying and actually replying, yes. I, mean, I think I, in the end, I approached about eighteen people to get fifteen subjects. So, um, and then I and I balanced out the book a little bit myself. And they're all sort of they're all sort of famous programmers. Yeah, probably the least famous is um, Bernie Cosell, who was who worked at BBN, Bolt, Brannick and Newman, 
um, on the team that built the original ARPANET imps, which were basically the first nodes of what became the internet. And so he was on the team with uh, basically two other guys, maybe three other guys who wrote the software for the imps. Hmm. You know, and then so he basically helped invent the internet. And so he should be famous, but I think be. maybe Al Gore has displaced him on that team. Yeah, right. So, uh, so he. I mean, actually, I got that name partly because my dad used to work at BBN. So, I when I started gathering names, I asked him to post a message on the XBBN mailing list, asking the BBNers like who of among all the people who worked at BBN, you know, might be a good candidate. So, because I, I just knew, you know, I'd done a lot of cool stuff at BBN. Surely, some of those guys um, would have been. A good choice, and there were, there were, you know, I could have actually done probably a whole book of BBN programmers, but right, you know, right, they, that would be a little too obscure, maybe. Um, well, whenever, did. whenever you get, I mean, every team has people that you know. There's, there's probably somebody on that team who wrote all the code and gets almost none of the credit because they're just not a publicity whore like Jeff and I, for example. <laughs> Right. So, the, I mean, in fact, that whole team is, I mean, unless you've read, I mean, there's a famous book, Where Wizards Stay a Plate, that sort of yeah. recounts that. And so he's mentioned in that book a couple times, as are the other people who worked on the software. But beyond that, I don't think those guys have ever really been, you know, I mean, or, I mean, they've been publicly acknowledged and there have been celebrations of the Internet and all that. But, um, you know, they're your day-to-day coder today probably hasn't heard of them. So that was, I was glad to include him. What? Um, plus, he lives on the, he's now a sheep farmer in Virginia, and I got to go stay on a sheep ranch for a few days. Seriously? <laughs> yeah. uh, we, should, well, we, should, we should have a separate conversation about how the pro, what programmers retire to when they reach the ripe old age of 27 or whenever it is that the average right. programmer gives up on coding. Because uh, that's, that's almost another whole other topic. Right. But, right. but what, what it, I mean, it seems to me like um, the programmers, there, there, there must be some qualitative difference between the kind of, the way programmers work, the way these programmers work, and the way you're sort of journeyman, everyday programmer in an insurance company. Works. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting, and I don't want to, you know, hopefully sell the book short, but it's, it's surprisingly hard to get at that. Mm-hmm. Um, by talking to people. I mean, I think I did as, about as good a job as I could, but it's, as I, th- I think I, I mentioned in the introduction, maybe the little letter on the back, I think it was the letter on the back, I talk about how, you know, programming is really obscure in, this, in the sense of obscured, like hard to see into because we work alone or in very small groups usually. Um, it all sort of goes on in our heads. Even the stuff that we produce is for the most part not seen Mm-hmm. Know, except by yourself and your team, maybe. Um, and then it's converted into this software that runs and people see the outs- outside behavior, but it's not like, you know, a novelist works in their head but produces a novel in the end, which everybody reads. And you can all look at the novel and try and figure out, like, well, how do they do this? Um, and so code isn't so much that way. And and all the really, really interesting decisions you know coding is just like an endless stream of decisions and all those decisions sort of happen inside someone's head mm-hmm. um and so it's hard to get at that without um i don't know sitting down with them i was thinking it actually been an interesting book what i should have done actually what really would deserve the title coders at work would if i could have sat down and pair programmed with these people right you right know, like watch them program <laughs> uh, say why did you do that you know but uh, that would probably be too invasive um yeah. but and a lot of them are that, retired from coding. Right. So that's right. Um, but that all said, you know, these guys and, and gals, one gal anyway, um, mostly just in a way they were like every other programmer I've ever met. They just sort of went deeper and in a way, in sort of a good way and a bad way. Like, I, when going in, I sort of thought people, these, the people I interviewed would be, on average, sort of much broader in their experience than the average programmer, right? And we're all used to the religious wars and, mm-hmm. you know, I like Unix, you like Windows, or I like C and you like Lisp or whatever. Um, and I thought, well, these guys would sort of rise above that. But <laughs> in, a, in a way, they often didn't. I mean, right. you know, Guy, Guy Steele knows a little, or not a little, Guy Steele knows a lot about everything. Um, and Donald Knuth obviously knows a lot about everything about algorithms. But like Ken Thompson, for instance, 
is sort of the prototypical Unix hacker. Yeah. You know, he, I mean, he invented it, obviously, so he is literally the prototype. But, um, he, you know, he knows all about Unix and C and systems programming and all that stuff. And certainly has, you know, a broader experience with the literature than your average programmer, probably. But, you know, has some of the same sort of, like, anti-Lisp biases that your average Unix programmer has. <laughs> you know, his, his conception of Lisp is not particularly more um, informed. It's sort of based on what he read about Lisp a couple decades ago and sure. has never been updated, which is fine. Um, no, it's not. <laughs> well, it's, it's sort of fine. I mean, it's, it, you, know, you can't know everything. And, right. and I talk with a lot of it's excusable about that. You, you can't know everything anymore. And probably that actually tells us something about the way he was able to do what he did um, was to focus on you know the stuff that he was working on, um, and so maybe he's a, a a little. I mean, it's both. Right? You want to be broad, but you also want to get stuff done, and so you want to right. you know, not spend your whole time exploring every possible technology that you could possibly use. Yeah, right. And so, you know, he still likes programming. It's the same with with uh, Knuth. You mm-hmm. know, Knuth basically uses C augmented with little programming tools. And has been doing that for decades, and is quite happy with it. And you know, he doesn't screw around like learning a new language every year, right? Um, so, so wait, I mean, is, is Knuth a duct tape programmer then? I mean, is that is that worse? Well, I don't know. I'll let I'll let Joel define because <laughs> I don't think I really want to get into that. Uh, I know. I'm just <laughs> I, like, I just like to tease Joel. That's what I do here. I wouldn't put Knuth in that category because he was never hur- he never hurried to get something out. That's true. <laughs> I mean, we're hoping he'll get the last book out before. It's the end of Knuth's time, right? <laughs> yeah. I do tell you, it is nerve-wracking interviewing him, because I you know, sit down with Knuth for two hours, and you're like, wow, that's two hours. He's not working on volume four. <laughs> it's okay. It's, it's one of many pairs of two hours that he's not working on volume four. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. So let's see. Any, any other big differences? Um, I, I often sort of feel, I, and, and I, this is just a, uh, now this is just going to be one of these sort of biased things, but there, there is a category of programmer, uh, and I guess uh, maybe I'm in the same category of sort of uh, the bloviating programmer, <laughs> the, the, uh, the, the programmer who has about a million opinions on things and is always, you know, what, what I really was writing about in the duct tape programmer is, is not so much the duct tape programmer as the opposite, which is the person who always has a shiny new thing that they have to try. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, that, that's the magpie, right? The, the magpie programmer. Okay, that's a good term. I mean, that's sort of the opposite. I mean, that's definitely a problem. Right, right. Where there, and, it's and, always and, the new thing. And, and, and you know, what, whatever the thing is or whatever the shiny new thing is, you know, there's a couple of ways they go wrong. One is they say, oh, well, the shiny new thing must be used 100% at all times, no matter what. Because it's shiny. And they become doctrinaire about shiny new thing. More likely, though, is that they just sort of run themselves into the ground with code that, that cannot possibly be good enough because they're, they're, they're new at the, and it's an untried technology. In other words, to be able to use a, uh, a, a programming technology really well, and I use the word technology broadway, broadly, I mean things like, let's say, a new programming language, a new API, a new framework. To use it really well, you probably have to have already done a large project with it learned what can go wrong in a large project when you structure things the way that you structured them and, 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 and then figured out what subset of this technology, if any, you can actually safely use. Because there's always, you know, these new technologies also give you, you know, often have lots of ways where you can go wrong. Right, right. Uh, one of the things I think of as being the classic example, I mean, the, the, the one that drives me the most crazy is specifically the case of multi-threaded programming in languages like C and C++, I don't think that it's possible for regular humans to write bug-free multi-threaded code. I think they will have race conditions and they'll have crashes if they try to write multi-threaded code in C or C++ because the languages are too expressive and they allow you to do things that will get you in trouble. If you had a some kind of a simplified framework or a simplified programming language that eliminated any possibility of, you know, whatever it may be, race conditions or, or, you know, re-entrant bugs or the kind of bugs that you have with multi-threaded programming, then... um, you know, you might feel like it's okay to use that, but as long as you're going to have raw pointers and raw memory allocation and that kind of stuff, you're, you're, you're going to. You're, I, I have never seen anybody that wrote multi-thread code that didn't have the scariest, most horrible, impossible to debug co- bugs in it. All right. Well, certainly the um, one of the questions I asked all of my subjects, or my, one of my standard questions was, 
what was the worst bug you ever had to track down? Mm-hmm. And almost all of them were concurrency bugs. Right. Um, either literally multi-threading bugs, or in some cases it was um, like a G, uh, you know, they were implementing a garbage collector. So that's essentially a concurrency bug because the normal program runs and then the garbage collector runs and then the normal program runs. Mm-hmm. And so you've got these two things mutating you know, mm-hmm. the memory at the same time or you know, interleaved. And so it's essentially a multi-threaded program at that point. Um, yeah, because it's, it, it becomes non-deterministic just because of timing things. Right. And so, so yeah, as I soon mean, as something's was, not reproducible, it's that much harder to debug. Right. So, yeah, I think that's, I mean, that's certainly backed up. You know, I mean, yeah. I, different people at different points. I think Joe Armstrong was, you know, he was like, debugging is easy. He's like, no, there's nothing hard about debugging. You just sit down and, and we sort of talked about that for a while. And then he was like, you know, I might have asked something. And he said, oh, yeah, well, that's not counting multi threaded stuff. <laughs> <laughs> that's not easy to debug. Yeah. But the rest is just easy. Right. Uh, yeah, I can't even. I can't. Uh, there probably was some example where it, where it wasn't essentially a con- con- concurrency bug that I, they referred with horror. But I think one of the problems that the programmers hit is that they, they they think they understand something well enough, and they don't realize just how utterly completely you have to be on top of it. You know what I mean? Like you have to. You you, you have about a hundred percent. If if what your brain can do is got, you you have a hundred percent of intellectual ability. You have 100 points of intellectual ability. If your tools are going to be taking up 99% of them, you're going to think, okay, I totally got this under control. I have 100 points and 99 of them are being taken up by my tools. But that's not leaving you any time to think about uh, the problems that you're working on. And if you, if you can somehow take the tools that are easier to use or simpler to use, which I've always sort of advocated this idea of taking programmers that can do C and C++ and have proven it, so they have that extra capability or LISP, and recursion and, and, and pointers, and then give them programming languages where they don't have to. You know, simpler programming languages that have garbage collection and, and uh, um, you know, where you don't, you know, you can use list, list comprehensions. You don't have to recur, recurse and so on and so forth. And that just sort of gives you kind of extra leftover mental capability that you can apply to thinking about your algorithms that actually allows the average good programmer in this situation to write code that's pretty darn close to bug-free when they first write it. You know, when you're mm-hmm. using simple tools and you're doing fairly simple programming, um, if you're writing a, a web-based, and, and this is something that I think I, I get into debates with the TDD people who want to do test-driven development 100% of the time. And I always say, you know, you want to do test-driven development for certain classes of problems, but not on 100% of your code. It's like a good thing when you do it, but you don't need to do it everywhere. And one reason I don't feel like you have to do it everywhere, and I think Jeff probably had the same experience, is that when you're writing fairly simple code that takes things from the user and puts them in a database and takes them out of the database and formats them on the screen, once you write that code, it tends to just work. It it, it really, like, maybe we're just, and I don't think it's because we're smarter programmers than anybody else. I think that they're just classes of code that doesn't have a lot of bugs in it. And when it, it does have bugs, they're, they're trivially easy to fix. And then there are classes of code that are very, very bug-prone, and there are classes of code that are very hard to keep track of all the special cases. And the ones where it's hard to keep track of all the special cases is where you can really benefit from, from test-driven development or even just like large volumes of unit tests. Well, I don't really understand what your argument is here. Is this that, that you're insufficiently paranoid unless you've worked with languages where you can sort of shoot your foot off like all the time? No, and then it's not that you're insufficiently be... paranoid. It's that, it's that I, I want to sort of see that people have the intellectual capability to do the stuff that's almost a little bit too hard. And, mm-hmm. and then I want them to, to waste that intellectual capability doing, you know, poking around in Visual Basic. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like basically, like, let's take, somebody, let's take somebody who can, you know, run the marathon barefoot and let them run the 100-meter dash with some really nice shoes on. Well, I'm actually I'm actually paging through the the other book, and I think uh, Peter, this was probably one of the inspirations for your book, the book Programmers at Work by Susan mm-hmm. Lammers. Is that the one uh, that Microsoft Press did years ago? Yeah, yeah. it's a really old book, but it has yeah. some super famous. I think it's probably the closest analog to what Peter did, which is awesome because it's a great book. Yeah, and I actually was paging through it while you guys were talking, and I'm actually looking at the appendix, and, and Bill Gates submitted this this eighty eighty basic code. And one thing yeah. I'm, I'm thinking is that when, you, when you're stuck at this very like, limited level of abstraction, you just write really small programs, I mean, if, if you know what you're doing. I mean, I guess one mark of a really talented programmer is they can write giant programs in 8080 assembler. But to me, if I had to do something like this, 
I would just write so little code. I would be writing like a, ru- a routine a day, if that. Yeah. You know, whereas on Stack well, Overflow, well, I can do like pages and pages of code. And as, as several people pointed out, um, and I think Guy Steele was the one who said, uh, when you're, you know, it used to be that your whole memory was 4K, or, you know, like you could look at a core dump. Right. Like you could print it out and look at it. Yeah. And you could sort of have some expectation that you would know, um, you know, what all these addresses mean. You know, other people, like Bernie Cassell for a while was um, in charge of this time sharing system that was deployed insanely early. It was like one of the earliest time sharing systems. It was actually, and it was deployed to the Mass General Hospital. And he had a pager, um, you know, back in the day when pagers were pretty new too. And he would get paged and he'd find a payphone and he'd call in and they'd say, well, the system crashed. And he'd say, okay, you know, go look at this octal location and tell me what's there. And they'd tell him and he'd be like, okay, change it to this value. And they'd change it and okay, hit the run button and they'd hit it and it would go. <laughs> like, I mean, he had that level of, uh, familiarity with the code and I think Fran Allen told a similar story about a guy who worked for her came in with a big printout he'd been staring at all weekend and was like why is this bit set and she told him oh that's because of this and so you know you can't do that when you've got four gigs of of memory that your program could be using Um, so so I mean they weren't just smaller because they were too hard to write that was really part of it but they were also just like the machines were smaller everything was smaller Mm -hmm. and so now it's um it's a it's sort of a different game. And, and wouldn't you attack and, and it? The, people I mean, said that, I, I, you know, Steele sort of said, like, well, I think we're trying to, um, you know, I asked if him if he felt like, you know, he's been working on all different languages. And I said, well, do you think languages have been getting better? Like, are we actually getting anywhere trying to make better tools for programming? And he says, yeah, I think, you know, we could write the programs that we could write, now we could write the programs that we wrote 30 years ago totally easily. The problem is that we're now trying to write programs that are correspondingly hard. And right. so it's it's still just as hard to write programs. It's just that the programs that we write do so much more, mm-hmm. or at least, um, well, whether yeah. they, you know, they, they, no, they do, definitely do, they, do more, sure. Um, some A lot of that more sometimes seems to be wasted on like graphics. <laughs> right, or, you know, whatever. I mean, is it ultimately, is our people's lives made better by the more stuff that they do? I don't know, but that's sort of a different question. Um, and which is also an, another thing. Uh, well, not not so much the user experience, but the internally, lots of the folks I talk to, and, and admittedly, a lot of the folks I talk to are from a, you know, slightly uh, older generation of programmers than people who are you know, in maybe the the hot prime of their career right now. But you know, a lot of these people said, "Wow, like modern programming is just so complex." And several of them said, "I'm glad I don't have to do it anymore." You know, Bernie Cosell. Farmer said, "You know, I'm glad that I did it when I did, and I have, you know, I get some credit for being having been really good at it. But I'm glad I don't have to do it now. Like, I don't think I can do it anymore." So, um, there's can, what I think it is is that this, although it is complex, it's also, I mean, we're getting these better, we're getting these better and better abstractions, which then leak, and that's what makes it complicated. So, you know, you can sit down and write a web application using very, very high-level tools, you know, what I call the uh, the mouse only, where you, you start start a Visual Studio, you drag things onto a page using your right hand, you sit on your left hand, and using only the mouse and click, you, you actually create and deploy a large application that does something relatively interesting. Um, the only trouble is that when you're when you're working at that high level of abstraction, it's very hard to come up with something novel and do something that's actually you know interesting and unique that will actually benefit anybody because you you've just done what the tools the basic tools allow you to do you've basically taken you know the lego kit that has you know the the, the little car and the little person and you've snapped the person into the car um you know whereas in the old days you used to have to get the little individual lego bricks and figure out what a car was going to look like yourself uh right. and and it's 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 uh it's cool and it's easy but the chances that you're going to do something novel that's going to impress anybody or win any kind of Lego contests is, you know, fairly slim. Right, right. So, Peter, did you did you see any? So, I assume the I haven't actually read the book, but I assume the book is just a collection of individual uh, interviews, right? Mm-hmm. So, With did the, you have yeah. any overarching themes that you saw emerge, or was it just you know a bunch of individualists doing their thing? I mean, is there any sort of meta commentary on on after having done this of well, so there was a couple of things. I mean, I asked them a lot of the same questions. 
um, or, or similar questions. I mean, we had a, it wasn't just like I went in with my list of 20 questions and we had a conversation, but there were some themes that I was trying to get at, like, and you know, it was just sort of starting with how did they learn to program? Um, and that was interesting in that although these people's experience spans a reasonably wide range, I mean, if you start with Fran Allen and Donald Knuth up to Brad Fitzpatrick, who, uh, you know, learned to program in the, I guess, uh, well, whenever the Apple came out, Apple II. Um, so, but all of these people, one way or another, it seems got some real hands-on time with the computer. Yeah. Um, in a way that... And they were self-taught cases, mostly, right? Right. And, and in, a, in a way that for some of them was quite unusual. Like, you know, Donald Knuth was at um, Case Western Reserve and they, you know, IBM... Uh, I can't, I'm blanking on the model number, but the IBM 650 maybe? Anyway, one of the IBM computers was sort of the first one that they made a bunch of, you know, 10,000 computers or something. And so there was enough of them in the world that mm-hmm. even a sort of small school like Case Western could get one. And then they had a po- just happened to have a policy that they let undergrads actually like touch the machine. It wasn't ensconced away in some air-conditioned room. And so he and a couple other folks actually got to play with this machine Um you know, certainly probably that's a couple decades before that was really widespread. Yeah, uh, and so he so he got to like sit down with this machine and play with the programs in the manual and say, oh, I could fix this. I could make a better version of this program and do it, load it in, and see what happens, and spend a few days debugging it, and so forth. Um, and other people, you know, had a, a computer access to a computer in high school for some reason or another, and they but they all like, got hands-on experience. Um, I don't think anybody really learned. I guess Fran Allen got it a little differently in that she was hired by IBM to be a programmer, you know, in the 50s. So, and basically got on the job training. So she got her hands-on experience that way. But a lot of them, it was just a sort of lucky chance of getting their hands on a computer. Mm-hmm. Um, well, well, you know, I just have to mention that Knuth did dedicate his books to the Type 650 computer, not to a yeah. loved one, but to the. <laughs> the actual computer in remembrance of many pleasant evenings. Uh, right. Of all yes. computers, too, a 650. <laughs> I mean, I can imagine you falling in love with a PDP 11. <laughs> but a 650? Really? Come on. I think he said that he still remembers the, the machine instructions. Yeah. And like uses them in his passwords. <laughs> oh, you gave away your security. We will get the passwords now. If only they knew 650 machine codes. Um, so, that, so that was sort of learning. So that was common. Um, then, like I said, the the you know the theme of debugging was really concurrency is the hard issue. A lot of people, like I said, mentioned that com- as programming is just getting more and more complex. Um, let's see, what else did I talk about? It's sort of uh, it's sort of programming is becoming complex in a way that it, it it's we we've had this grand shift from the Knuth era. Where Knuth would write out his complete his whole program on, on paper with 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 pencil, uh, type it in, and then it would usually expect it to kind of work the first time because he would have thought about it so much. Mm-hmm. Um, to the the current world where you're programming on top of some kind of abstraction layer that has incomplete and shoddy documentation and has bugs in it, I mean, whatever the abstraction layer may be, whether it's your class libraries, your framework, or whatever, and programming becomes this form of experimentation where you just have to keep trying things until you find the one that actually kind of works. And uh, and you could never even imagine writing code anymore by sitting down and writing the lines of code that you're going to use. Well, I think it's right. a deeper change, and I think it's more we're writing social. All software is social software now. I mean, everything touches the web. Everything touches other people. That's a good point. So too. the old school way of you know sitting in front of your Commodore 64, you know maybe you have a modem where it's just you and the machine. I mean that's yeah. long gone. So that's why I find it sort of ironic that we've moved from this model of of you know hackers as these lone, you know introverts who are really insulated from the outside world. And certainly, I mean, I'm, that's what attracted a lot of young kids and probably even adults to computers. But that's just not the way it is anymore. Right, right. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I spend all my time trying to solve social problems. I mean, the code is really secondary to that stuff. You're actually, like, building a s- software community, and, and your, your tool is the code, but it's just the tool. It's not the end goal in any way. 
And yeah, so I when mean, you have a bug, when there's a bug in Stack Overflow, the bug is, you know, if somebody... The bug is that people think it's a bug. That's the bug. Exactly. It's, not, it's nothing about the functionality not working the way you intended it to work. It, it work it's working work the exactly the way you programmed it. Yeah. You have no problem getting it to behave the way you programmed it. That part's easy. We solved that problem. <laughs> right. I don't have to sit down and write, you know, sorting algorithms. I mean, it, it, we're at such a higher level of abstraction, but I just... I have to emphasize that, and, and I think, I'm trying to remember who said this. I think it might have been Jamie Zawinski, your favorite guy, but I think he was saying that pretty much that all software is social software now, and you just kind of have to get over it. I mean, that's just kind of the way it is. Those are the problems. We're solving the people problems now. We've kind of solved all the computer problems at that level, and I kind of agree with that, actually. Um, there, there, there is a, much a harder uh, point where that's not true anymore, and, and in a way, the experience, you know, certainly the experience of Google and the experience of um, Twitter as sort of a counterexample have shown that I mean, the social problems raise different kinds of, of programming challenges, right? You know, if you're going to have a million, couple million users banging on your social software, now you have just plain old-fashioned engineering scaling problems that um, you didn't used to have. You know, it used to be you could, you know, if you had 100 users on your timesharing system, like, that was a big system. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, like, uh, several of the people I interviewed, I guess, well, I interviewed, I think, se several people are from Google now, or at Google. Um, and I think it was Peter Norvig and Brad Fitzpatrick who both sort of independently raised, um, I guess I, I made sort of the kind of argument similar to what you guys are saying, that, oh, well, you know, programming languages are better and they're at, we're operating at a higher level and it's okay to, um, you know, we can sort of burn some computer cycles and we don't have to get down to the bare metal all the time and, and we don't have to worry as much about sort of low-level efficiency concerns. Mm -hmm. And they said, yeah, well, that's true unless you're Google. Right. In which case, yeah. you know, the, the amount of just sheer electricity you have to buy <laughs> matters, yeah. Yeah. right? If, if it runs 10% slower, that's 10% more power, and 10% of a big number is still a pretty big number. That's like for Google, that's another large data center. Right. And yeah. so they do, you know, they, as, as probably people know, you know, they write their low-level stuff in C++. They have people at Google working on the compiler to make sure the compiler is generating good code and, you know, so they are operating at this, uh, maybe not quite the same as, you know, Bernie Cassell used to work on in assembly at BBN when they would, you know, do all kinds of little tricks to fit stuff into memory and shave a byte off of a data structure here. But it is, they got to fit it in, you know, a data center. Because, like yeah. I say. Well, that, I, I, I keep saying that stuff still matters. If you have to buy, um, if you're using a language that's 10 times slower, you have to buy 10 times as much hardware. So your data center is going to have 40 machines instead of four, and that's if you were lucky enough to have a scalable, to come up right. with a scalable algorithm. And th that, that now all of a sudden we're talking real money here, and, and that is the kind of order of magnitude difference you'll see between um, you know, the slower interpreted languages and the, the faster compiled languages. Right. And another place that comes in, and this is, I guess, where I'm sad that I could never get a hold of John Carmack, is you know, the people who are doing games programming are also operating at this really crazy low level still, you know, and figuring out how to yeah. get, squeeze stuff out of GPUs and, right. and, you know, it's all kinds of crazy hacks going on there um, that's quite a bit divorced from, you know, building business apps on, you know, the web. But that's going to disappear. Platform. That's eventually, right, they're going to be able to do full 8 billion I mean, that's got to end, right? There's got to be some limit to the number of frames per second that you need. Well, there's even Carmack has said recently that if, if he was starting out now, he would be an iPhone programmer. He would write games for the iPhone because, I mean, ultimately, you kind of <laughs> the gameplay is, is more about accessibility. You know, sort of the Wii uh, case study, I guess you'd say. It's about reaching the broad audience and having a, an experience that ex that a lot of people can benefit from. Right. Right. Versus, you know, the hardcore to the metal. You know, have a five hundred dollar video card type of thing. So even Carmack has kind of moved away from that. Yeah. Uh, when he isn't building rocket ships, that's his other big hobby. Right. There's a, a lot of the a lot of um, uh, uh, retired programmers are doing cool stuff. Um, and, and a lot of the ones that made a lot of money in their first career. Uh, Jamie Zawinski has a nightclub in in San Francisco, and yeah, I've been to it. Oh, really? 
Uh, Maybe that's actually, where you got yeah. the ear infection. No, 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 no. <laughs> well, so that, that actually is something you just said made me think of another commonality I found. Despite the fact that several of the people I interviewed are actually sort of retired, yeah, they all still program. So it is really they they mostly seem the people who burned out burned out on um, the industry, right? I mean, Zawinski very clearly. I mean, it says that I think in the interview, and um, and uh, Peter Deutsch has a sort of interesting passage where he describes, you know, he finished up one big project and sort of said, "Well, I have time for another, you know, big project in my life." And he looked around and talked to some people about stuff and was thinking about what project to work on and and just couldn't find anything that excited him and realized that he just wasn't excited about programming anymore. And instead, decided to study music composition mm-hmm. because he felt like it would maybe, you know, a musical composition might last longer than a piece of software. <laughs> um, however, he still programs all the time. You know, not all the time, but he's working on a piece of uh, his own music composition software because he was dissatisfied with all the ones that are out there. Um, you know, Brad Fitzpatrick, who's far from retired, but said, you know, I don't. If I if I get sick of this and retire, then I'll just basically write iPhone games. Was, yeah, he was talking about or probably not iPhone, Android games for him. Um, you know, he's he's just like this is what I would do for fun, and if I don't you know don't need to get paid for it, I'll just just do it. And even Zawinski still writes his little bits of you know works on X screensaver and stuff. So, and and that goes back to where they started too. They all got this hands on experience, but they also all loved it. Mm-hmm. And that's probably the other, I mean, they, they became great programs. I think at one point I asked Guy Steele, he was describing how he used to, when he was at Harvard, he had a couple hours in the morning free. And so he would usually go to the library and read, what was it, forward through the ACM, Association Community Media, uh, the journal from the ACM, and backwards through Scientific American. Because <laughs> that you know, was when, the uh, mathematical games was the last page of Scientific American, right? Right. right. Well, and, but backwards in time, so he's like, oh, he I see. Recent one, and he was going back. But and the ACM was only there was only fifteen years or something at that point, so he actually started like the first. You might as well point, just pick up the first, first edition issue. and just read forwards. And I said, oh well, so did you do that to you know? I forget how I asked, but you know, so, you know, would you recommend doing that for someone who wanted to become a great programmer? And he said, "Well, I didn't do that to become a great programmer. I did it because it was interesting to me." Mm-hmm. He was just, you know, fascinated in that stuff, and he read it, and it, you know, and ultimately that led to him having such a breadth of knowledge as he has today. But, um, you know, Brad Fitzpatrick was hacking from when he was like five years old, and his mom had to make him go outside and play with his friends. <laughs> um, so. You know, there's a lot of that. It's a, it, as probably anyone who really is a programmer knows, it's it's easy to get obsessed by it and sucked into it and just want to do it. And certainly, no one I interviewed. Um, I mean, probably the closest. You know, Fran Allen became more of a theorist, um, but even at that, you know, she was working in re- at IBM Research on her various compiler projects. And she ended up being, you know, the, the leader of these projects, and she sort of had a research agenda. But they had programmers working for her, and she was really insistent on having, you know, it wasn't good enough to just have a f- nice theoretical idea, but she really wanted to see the code that made it practical and made it work. And she would look at code, and and finally, you know, that her her team would write, and you know, she was still involved in that. So, um, it's it's. Uh, Hard to escape, even if you get burned out. I guess it's cool. Part of the problem, well, but also um, I, I think it's probably a prerequisite if you're going to be a great programmer. I mean, no one, no one's becomes probably great at anything if they don't really just love to do it. Right, because you just have to have the hours of practicing. Right, right. All right. The book is uh, Coders at Work. Uh, it's at codersatwork dot com. That's right. Moving on, I'm not so good at the segues. Jeff, do we have any Stack Overflow news from the last couple of weeks? Uh, well, I kind of lost two weeks of my life, which uh, oh. was very unpleasant. Uh, but we did have some slow progress on uh, Stack Overflow. Uh, I I do want to mention that we're 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 actually undertaking a program now to send free stickers to users who are on page one or page two of any of the trilogy. It is the sites. free sticker program. Yes, the free sticker program, and also we're looking at doing some sort of automated 
uh, vote-based ad- free advertising for open source projects because we have so much ad inventory. There's just no way we're going to fill it all. Oh. And rather than put a ton of low-value stuff there, that would be a nice service to the community if you could go in and sort of vote on, hey, you know, these are the cool open source projects that more programmers should be aware of. And we're going to make that sort of an automated process. You can vote on Meta. Um, that's currently under discussion on Meta. I'll uh, link that in the show notes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and then, and then, really, that's that's pretty much it on the news front. That's all we got. Yeah. Um, I got a listener question. It's not really related to anything. Okay, go for it. I don't want to play. Hi there. This is uh, Stuart Robinson from uh, London, England. I wonder whether you guys have got opinions on people listening to music while they're coding. I pretty much listen to music all the time whilst I'm coding. I find it hard to code without music. Um, part of that is the uh, the office I work in is pretty loud, and I find that to concentrate, to really get into the zone, I need to listen to music. I know Joel has spoken before about um, private offices, and I wonder, do you, you know, does, does this affect us? Do you do you have opinions here? Um, it sounds like he was whispering because he was recording that work because he doesn't have well, a probably loud people where he worked and he couldn't <laughs> record this question. Uh, I, I have, uh, you know, the, 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 the official, the official, my official source of information comes from, uh, uh, what's it called? What's that book? Peopleware. Peopleware. Their favorite book. I've heard of that book. And, and it says that if you put programmers in a noisy place, they will listen to music. They'll put on the headsets and listen to music. And when they're listening to music, it appears that uh, the music uh, makes it difficult for them to have the same kind of deep thoughts and to notice certain types of deep patterns. Like there's a certain type of thinking that the, having music in your ears actually interferes with. And I've heard a lot of programmers who agree that that is true for certain types of music. Some people like white noise, like they'll actually play wave wave sounds or mm-hmm. flushing or trains on the tracks or something like that. And uh, and that won't distract them. But but there um there was a study <laughs> Wait a second. Wait, 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 wait. Toilets flushing. Well <laughs> maybe not. <laughs> yes. Let me put in my white noise of toilets flushing so I can concentrate. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's you great. know, just some kind of like a water, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I uh uh, anyway, um, uh, Peopleware refers to a study, which they don't quote, an, an unpublished study, which nobody's reproduced. So this is very, very sh- shady, that, that claims that uh, uh, in, in this study, they gave people uh, a certain tasks to do. And it was, I think it was like a multiple choice quiz, and they had to choose uh, answers. And um, uh, th- they all did fine whether or not they were listening to music. They gave some people a quiet room and some people had it on headsets and they were listening to music. But according to the study, allegedly, the people that were listening to music failed to notice uh, a pattern in the answers, which is, I think the answers were like A, B, C, D, A, B, C, D, A, B, C, D, A, B, C, D, and you would probably notice this very quickly. And um, they just sort of failed to, to, to make that mental leap, and they just kept slogging through the problems. And so while they were able to do the problems, they didn't have that sort of extra deep thinking capacity that, that, that they would have had if they had been in a completely quiet place. That, now, that is the claim of the study that is quoted in Peopleware and not actually published, which makes it very shady, if, if you ask me. But uh, it does appear as if listening to music is not a good substitute for being in a quiet environment in terms of allowing you to think, think deeply. Then there's also the, I think someone, it might have been Peter Norvig, I think, um, when I interviewed him, mentioned this, I don't think this is probably in the book, but uh, pointing out that, I mean, that's a pretty specialized test. I mean, it's certainly in sort of, if you stand back far enough, you say, well, lots of, lots of programming has to do with pattern matching and pattern recognition, and therefore that mm-hmm. was pattern recognition, and therefore this would uh, you know, infect, uh, affect your ability to code yeah but it's also if you look closer it's like well it's a very specific kind of you know it's it's uh sort of passively noticing a pattern that you don't even know you're supposed to be looking for versus right right. thinking about stuff which you know you're supposed to be thinking about right um could be very i mean it's hard to jump from one to the other but that's really where I mean, if this if this were actually the case, and I'd love to see a real study <laughs> that somebody actually tried to reproduce, uh, if this were actually the case, then it may be the case that programming 
you don't notice that there's anything wrong with your programming ability just because you're listening to music, but you're missing out on all kinds of, you know, optimization techniques or opportunities to just, you know, you might, you're like, all right, I need a function to do such and such. And you plow through it and you write it and you code it and you just never notice that you don't actually need that function or that some other function may serve as a stand-in for this function or you just never achieve. Um, so, um, Anyway, that that would be intriguing, but I I, I I don't know if there's that much evidence that this is really uh, the case. Um, in general, I, I I know a lot of people that just don't like programming with music. I've actually, you know, it's bizarre. I can the the best way for me to program is you sit me down in front of a sitcom that I've already seen 400 times, like an old episode of Seinfeld, and it's all the more better if it's like one of those 6 p.m. sitcom from syndication where they're showing 15 minutes of ads for every 15 minutes of show. Are you talking like watching television while programming? That's, and that, I can just, I can, I'm not saying I don't even know that the TV's on, but I can just crank like that in that particular mode. Wow, that's, that's shocking. I don't know why. Because I mean, I, I don't really have a problem with music and in fact, I enjoy listening to music while programming. I, yeah. I, I don't know if there's any real science there. I think it's just about individual happiness more than anything else. I mean, if it, Certainly, having a private office would make people happy. I think because then you have choice, and that's always yeah, great. Exactly. But if you don't, if you don't have the choice, then I do think music, of certain types of music, maybe not like death metal, you know, something that's rhythmic and simple, right, right, um, does help because there's there's all these people who talk about this connection between music and programming. I mean, this gets very new age at some level. Well, maybe that's um, because the music is occupying the part of your brain that should be occupied by the by the programming. <laughs> Well, there's the, the, the whole flow state argument, right? If yeah. music helps you get into a flow state, if you think it helps you get into a flow state, then I think it's a net positive. But I will say right. for me that anything with video, I can't, it completely kills my attention. Like, I can't. That's shocking to me that you can watch video because I, that's the one thing I absolutely cannot do. Have you noticed anything with video? Um, have you noticed that uh, if, you're, if you're ever driving your car and you suddenly have to, like, send a text message, which is a very bad idea, that... Uh, certain operations that you might do with a like a handset, like an iPhone or something, whilst driving, appear to suck down so much of your concentration ability. And, and this stuff is studied, and there are reproducible experiments of this. Well, but I could be killed while driving. Yes, exactly. You could be a totally different scenario. Well, wait, I mean, but think about how like. Um, when you're other driving, other people could be killed. I could kill other yes, people while driving. They can kill you. I, I'm having a problem with. But there's certain things, like for example, it, it, it's well known that selecting from a menu. Um, using like an iPod scroll wheel or anything, to cho- choosing from a menu uses enormous amounts of CPU in your brain somewhere that makes it like literally impossible to walk safely. I mean, people literally, pedestrians in New York City get hit by cars because they're, they're choosing a song on their iPod. It's nothing about the music, nothing about listening to the music. It's actually the act of selecting from a menu is known to just occupy some, some substantial part. You know, whatever it is, there's only one circuit in your brain for that, the steering that it takes to both steer your body not into cars and steer the menu. And so it's, it's, it's conceivable that music is somehow occupying some part of your brain that you really could have used. <laughs> In the programming act. Well, to me, driving is like a video, though. I mean, it's such sensory overload because right. you're looking at everything. Whereas in code, I mean, A, it's a lot of patterns. It's a lot of reading. It's like textual stuff. Yeah, you do have to read. Like a lot of times you're reading documentation to figure out the next step. Or you're just visually looking at flow, right? Yeah. I mean, variables, really short variable names, just structure yeah. of code. I mean, it's almost like a pattern matching game. It's almost like Tetris at some level. Well, there's also there could be a flip side, Joel, though, that um, just... I mean, you're theorizing that perhaps music occupies a part of your brain that should be used for programming, but there's also the, certainly in my experience of coding, that sometimes the way you get your brain to program properly is to distract another part of your brain. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've, I had this experience a bunch of times where I was debugging some, as we were talking about before, debugging multi-threaded code, and I basically ended up um, generating a huge printed out traces of, you know, what different threads thought different variables were at different times and <laughs> yeah. blah, 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 and dumped them all out into a log and poured over the log. And I basically spent, I think what really happened was I had eventually got enough output into this log that just to look at, like, analyze one run took, you know, minutes, half an hour, I don't know, a long time of just sort of pouring, tracing through this thing. Mm-hmm. And then the solution popped into my brain. Mm-hmm. 
And I think it was, it was not really the output was all that useful in terms of I found the bug through the output, but it distracted one part of my brain so another part of my brain could get to could the answer. Could find that. And yeah. so maybe that music actually, and I think I'm having this vague recollection, I can't find it in any of my transcripts of someone when I was talking to about this for the book, um, said something like that, that they had actually... I'm sort of making this up, but I had this recollection that someone said <laughs> okay. something about <laughs> uh, about uh, some study that suggested that music might actually serve that purpose of of um, you know disengaging or distracting the part of your brain that would actually interfere with programming. Uh-huh. Um, so it sort of soothes one part of your brain so that the other better programming part of your brain could come more to the fore. Ah. so. So you'd have to, I mean, they're both equally likely and made up possibilities at this point. This stuff has no evidence. You know what would be fun to do uh, next time we do Stack Overflow Dev Days? Not, not these upcoming ones, but in the future. We could have, um, uh, we, could, we could do an experiment. We're going to have like 900 programmers in a room together. <laughs> During the break, we get a bunch of volunteers. We could divide up into, you know, 90 teams of 10 people each. <laughs> and we can try different programming methods. And we can actually put an end to these uh, to, to to some debate once and for all. Apparently, well, I, I, I don't think you need a lot of research. I think it's just you know you need to be happy in your working environment, um, and I think that's more important than any data points with programming because it's just oh. it's such it's kind of a creative work. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but what would you do if you found out that when you you personally code, say you found out that if you personally code with music on, you make. 10% more bugs than when you don't, even if it's more pleasurable, would you, you know, at what point would you trade off and say, you know what, I'd rather just not have the bugs? Yeah. I, I think, I think if you, if you, if we had to do this as an experiment, I don't know that I would use programming as the, the activity, but I could see like maybe a multiple choice test or something that kind of engages your brain a little bit. I think, uh, I guess the, I could the, see that. The experiment I really want to do is little teams of, let's say, four people and some of them are working at a big table. Like sit, the four of them are basically sitting around the table and they each have their own computer, but they're sitting around the table. And they have some project to do. And the other four uh, each get their own private office to go back to. And you give them a, you know, like a two-hour project or something. And they meet and they discuss how they're going to divide it up and so on and so forth. And they've got to deliver some debug piece of code that can easily be divided into four pieces. And just sort of go off and come back and see what, you know, if there's any... If there's any measurable difference between the ones that got their own, they got a little office to go to, versus the ones that sat around a big table, you need you so, need a lot of sample size for that. Yeah, well, that's why we got 900 people in London. So if we just get half them to volunteer for our for our evil experiment, that's a pretty that's a that's a statistically significant sample. So Peter Norvig is doing something like this at Google, or at least just when I talked to him, he was trying to because mm-hmm. Google measures everything, right, mm-hmm. and tries to, and so and they have a gazillion programmers now, and so he was trying to. Um, set up a study where they would basically track all kinds of variables mm-hmm. um, and probably starting with things that they could just automatically measure um, but then really try and find the, the at least the correlations mm-hmm. you know within Google programmers is it like sort of the kind of thing you're talking about like well this team works in it this way and this team works that way and this guy works with right. music and this guy whatever uh, it's fairly uh, hard because it's hard to hold everything else constant while you vary one thing unless you're actually You've set up a deliberately contrived experiment. Right, right. Wasn't there something in the news about that where Google was, was a little bit controversial that they were... Weren't they, they were doing that with resumes. No, it was something with actual measuring the people that were there trying to... Yeah, yeah, based on... <laughs> it, it, it came across as a little big brothery. I don't think Google meant it for, to be that way, obviously, because Google generally doesn't try uh, to... I thought they did a thing where they took all the resumes of everybody that was working there and they looked for keywords... And they correlated it with their success in their career at, at Google. In right. order they to do determine that. what they should look for in keywords in resumes in deciding who to hire. Can't find that news article, but I do remember that. That was maybe six or seven months ago. It sounds like what you're describing, where Google just seems obsessed with measuring everything, which is uh, uh, has its downsides. As I think Some, they're not the only company before. that does that. That's uh, I mean, Amazon is is that way too. But there's, but isn't that part of the lesson of people where it's like certain measurements are very much a double-edged sword, right? Yeah. In terms of how you measure what you're measuring, um, a lot of those measurements can kind of backfire unless you're extremely well, careful. The, the the part that backfires the most is if you then 
use the measurements as feedback to like how people get compensated. In but which that's case, the totally the Google faking. model, right? That's like AdSense in a nutshell. Kind of, yeah. But I don't think they would do that with their employees. I think they're smart enough not to do that to their employees. I think they... Well, that's why this news article was so controversial because it sounded yeah. like they actually – and this may have been incorrect, but yeah. it, it sounded like that's actually what they were trying to do. I don't know. I think anybody from Google would tell you that half the people there aren't doing anything. <laughs> <laughs> they couldn't possibly be incentivized by measurements based on the actual work that they do. Right. Um, uh, hey, does anybody have a uh, – Peter, do you have a Stack Overflow question you wanted to talk about? In the two minutes we got left, um, sure. In the two so the, we well, the left. one that, well, that we caught my it. eye, of yeah. course, was uh, someone asked, "Where is it? What is the single most influential book every programmer should read?" Ooh. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, oh right. <laughs> which I was I was interested in partly because, well, for perhaps obvious reasons, um, I've got two. I'd like to add to that list, but uh, um, but also just it, it struck me looking at the list of books that had been you mm-hmm. know voted up in the answers. Like how many of them I had read or at least own, um, and also the extent to which books are really um, a big part of programming now in a way that they weren't for a lot of the people I interviewed. And yet nobody right. buys them. What's that? And yet nobody buys books anymore. Well, so that's the other right. So then now, yeah, um, we may even I think we sort of passed through the golden age of tech books, um, partly due to the the boom when everybody had big book budgets and so forth. And and also just now there's so much stuff on the web and it's you know certainly as a as a book author it's interesting to me, um, you know what what niche books will continue to fill for programmers right um, but and also sort of prior to that golden age a lot of the folks I interviewed were from a time before there were lots of good books um, or lots of books at all and you know they learned to program by programming mm-hmm. maybe read some manuals and that was it and and there's certainly some something to be said for i mean there's a lot of books that are popular and people read and talk about um that maybe the time would have been better spent just programming some of the uh <laughs> wait, wait 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 i really like that okay that's that's great rather than read the book just go program just go spend, spend another two hours programming there's a lot to be said for that and it's true uh yeah it depends on the books you know there the, i definitely remember there, there was an era you know the era in which there was the IBM 360 mainframe. Nobody had computers. There, you couldn't buy a book on a computer. I mean, when I was a little kid, I went to the bookstore to look for computer books, and there were two because nobody had computers. There was, there was a big mainframe on the University of New Mexico campus. And so I remember buying a book that was like a PL1 programming manual put out by IBM uh, that they had in the bookstore simply because a lot of people were doing PL1 programming on the mainframe. And um, these books were technical manuals, and they had an obligation to teach people what was known then about programming practice. And so they were actually a lot better than you would expect. I, I, I remember that era, too. I remember, remember just the like, AppleSoft manual? Remember, does anybody remember the AppleSoft manual? Oh, yeah. It was awesome. No, I used to pour because that was all you could get, though. Yeah, I mean, that was totally, that's all there was. It came with your Apple. And, and those, I mean, I wasn't going to go on, like, CompuServe and troll the forums with <laughs> my 300-baud modem to figure out. I don't even know if they really, had that. Yeah, yeah. So um, the, the, it's interesting. Code complete. I, I, you kind of have to ignore the replies here because they're sort of stupid. number one book, of course, is Code Complete by Steve McConnell, which is sort of uh, look. I, oh, look, I wrote this: the Encyclopedia of Good Programming Practice. And um, the number one comment on that is, "I wasn't very impressed." Written by unknown person who couldn't be bothered to log on or to capitalize the word "I." Um, and then the second one is you should already know everything in this book, really, by Tim Williscroft. And there's a certain amount of like snobbishness, like, why do you need that book? I'm a superior programmer. You should know all that stuff. Um, but people genuinely don't. They actually right. don't. And that's why these books are so good. Right. And I, I was, I was um, sharing this list on, uh, on the, the, the list channel on IRC, because that's sort of where I hang out. And... Um, and there was some, a certain amount of that snobbishness. And it hit me that yeah. if you, I had them sorted in the order that they appeared on Stack Overflow. But if you sorted them, if you put them in the order that people should read them, in the sense of like, okay, you're a, you know, whatever, a high school kid or fresh right. out of college or something, and you're just starting your career, you should read Code Complete. Uh-huh. You know, it, would be, it would be sort of insulting, perhaps, to someone who's, you know, to say to someone who's been working for a couple decades, like, you should read this book. 
because you should know that stuff by now. Well, no, you know what? If you even if you're relatively experienced, I wouldn't say a couple of decades, but if you've got like ten years of experience and you read through code complete, you're going to know half the things. You're going to disagree with a quarter of the things, and the other quarter are going to be genuinely useful. Right. I mean, there's that like eight hundred things in code complete. So, sure. And, sure. so, so there, uh, and there's stuff you wouldn't have really thought about. Well, if, right. if you read the book and get one good thing out of it, I mean, it already has kind of paid for itself. I mean, that's, yeah. I think, true of any book. But that sort of begs the question of, like, why, why even – if all you're looking for is one useful thing, mm-hmm. do you have to read an entire book to get that, right? Like, couldn't you find, like, a blog entry or <laughs> – yeah. you know? Yeah, but, it just seems uh, like well, a big that's, commitment. That's a whole different thing. It might be easier to find the one book and – because you don't know what the thing is going to be. That's true. But no, you can keep you going read, back to the well. Totally. Have I mean, you that's read, the great uh, thing about these books. Philip Greenspun's the story of the book about his book, uh, yeah. One of, and he mm-hmm. and he talks about like why computer books are also fat. Oh, just because like, that's just, how that's how they sell. Like they basically the they they go into bookstores and they look for the thickest book on the topic because they figure the answer's got to be in there somewhere. Right. <laughs> uh, which I've certainly fallen prey to. You know, more more for me on things where I don't, I like I don't know. You know, it's like I have a stupid Windows box that I need to sort of administer, and I don't know anything about that, and I have some problem. Like, well, hopefully the answer is in here somewhere. Right, right. And, and of course, it's, it's super not. super Bible. Yeah, and those. Are well, the most also, wait, wait, wait. Let me go back yeah. to your specific example, Peter. In, in a lot of cases now, particularly with Stack Overflow and the trilogy sites, it's actually faster to post the question and have somebody answer it than it is to go through the book. Believe it or not. <laughs> sure. I mean, that's, right. that's you, sort of the... If you know, if you know what your now. question is, but it, if we're talking about, like, sort of learning something, I mean, hopefully a good book is going to teach you something... Some concepts, so that you that can... You, wouldn't, you didn't know that you needed to know. Well, then you want a short book. Then you want the shortest book possible. But, it, the, the, but From your tone, I, I didn't get the impression that this is a topic that you really want to go deep on. <laughs> I mean, it seems kind of like you just want the specific answer, and then you move on. And I, I think there's nothing wrong with that. And, and when Joel and I set up Stack Overflow, we said for a lot of programmers, they have a specific problem they want to solve. They want a little tiny bit of background, but just enough to solve that one problem at hand. And that's okay, I mean, depending on how often you do that, um, if that's your entire program. I think a, a lot of programmers, that's, the, that's part of the gist of Stack Overflow, is that programmers have learned, have moved from a model where in order to program something, you sit down, you read the book, you learn it, you do some exercises, and then you do your own problem. They've, moved, they've eliminated that first step, uh, mostly because of the internet, of sitting down and learning from a book. They just start trying to hack some code together in a completely new framework. They start working on their own code, the minute if they're reading a tutorial, they're already ignoring the, 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 the problems and the examples in the tutorial and using their own code that they want to write as the problems and examples. And they drop the book after the third chapter. And when they can't figure something out, they just go to Google and they go to Stack Overflow and they go to discussion forums. And the code is terrible, of course, but that's the way they do it. And eventually, the, the second project, the code will be pretty good. Well, I can actually well, tell you what happens because there's a pattern with certain Stack Overflow users where you're either you're either learning something or you're not learning anything. Mm-hmm. And as long as you're learning a little bit every time, it's okay because you make progress. And it's a question of how fast you make progress, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it could take years. It could take six months if you're really talented. But the, the only time that's really problematic is for the users who are almost trying not to learn anything. You know, right. it's just they're so narrow and so specific and so, you know, not paying attention to what's going on, that it's actually a problem. They're just like do my own, the do my homework crowd, basically. Yeah, it's like you're doing all the work for them. They're not even contributing. Hey, but Peter, I do want to mention, I found uh, in this thread your book, and I voted it up. Oh, good. Oh, yeah, let's do that. <laughs> it was posted. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't put it there, second. so things no, get, you didn't. Things do get fairly. How did you? How do you find something in a thread? I just went to the bottom in this case because I figured it would be. Uh, <laughs> it would be last. <laughs> well, because it's it's new. It just came out, yeah. right? Uh, and sure enough, it was down there. I also deleted a bunch of negatively voted stuff while I was in there. I cleaned up. I did a little uh, weeding okay. in the garden. It's, it's like on page uh, nine. Yeah, it's on. Uh, it has one vote, so it should be on. There's there's a lot of pages here. Our, our <laughs> system doesn't scale well to questions that have like hundreds of answers. answers. Yeah, it, it does. It sort of. Uh, it should be on page uh, seven. It is on page seven because okay. that's where the one to zero transition is. Well, I'll vote it up, and then it'll be on the two to one transition and, and and peter nobody will notice if you voted up either so code is yes. at work peter it is okay to vote up your own book because we like your book anyway uh by peter seibel um thanks very much for for being our guest besides coders at work um you you have a blog where where's your stuff it's at gigamonkeys.com gigamonkeys.com and yep. uh yeah also a practical common lisp which is now the de facto standard reference 
manual for Lisp, pretty much, Excellent. right? Because it's the only one that's not 10 years old. And, um, that's right, though. There's actually a couple print. coming out, so I'll have competition soon. No kidding. O'Reilly oh. finally dropped their Lisp book ban, and they're publishing a Lisp book. They had a ban? Yeah. They had a thing on their website that said, you know, if you want to write for us, blah, 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 and you know, topics we're interested in. And then they had like two topics they did not want proposals about, and it was, or three, it was uh, web based instruction, Lisp, and LaTeX or something. <laughs> no, no, LaTeX book. <laughs> what? LaTeX what? LaTeX. What is that? LaTeX is, is a macro language for tech, which is Knuth's oh, page, okay. page layout language. You know what's funny is I didn't know how to pronounce that, so I couldn't understand what you were saying. LaTeX. La yes. Technically, it's, it's, <laughs> tech is really supposed to be tech, but nobody says it that way. I see. Because that's just annoying. All right. Yes. Well, to our listeners, if you have any questions you'd like us to discuss in a future episode of the show, uh, why don't you record an MP3 or Og Vorbis file and email it to podcast at stackoverflow.com, or you can just phone up the podcast hotline at uh, 646-826-3879. Um, we've also got a podcast transcript wiki where volunteers around the world transcribe bits and pieces uh, of these podcasts for the benefit of the people who don't want to listen to them. And uh, that will be linked to from the show notes where you can also find hyperlinks to various things that we've mentioned on today's show. Uh, and that is all at blog.stackoverflow.com. Anything else? No. That's, uh, Peter, thanks for being on and thanks for producing such a great book. I'm, I'm actually going to go buy a copy. I really want to read this now. Good. Well, thanks for having me. And uh, see you next week. See you next week. You've been listening to Stack Overflow with Jeff Atwood and Joel Spolsky. The Conversations Network is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we need your help. For a tax-deductible donation of as little as $5 per month, you can support this channel and the rest of the Conversations Network. So please visit conversationsnetwork.org to become a member and help us continue to bring our programs to the world for free. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. The post-production audio engineer for this program was Joel Spolsky. Our website editor was Jeff Atwood. The series producer is Jeff Atwood. This is Phil Windley. I hope you'll join me next time for another great presentation from Stack Overflow here on IT Conversations.